It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. Well, it's fun having our guests here. Uh, and uh, it's great. Uh, I, I wish I could hang out with you guys this week. You guys, by the way, you ladies missed uh, some serious fun over the weekend. That'll teach you to go to a m- marriage and motherhood conference. just want you guys to know that. You guys ever ch- think of doing that again in the future, we're going to have fun somewhere else. So, no, we had a great time uh, too, but it sounded like the uh, marriage and motherhood conference was a delight as well. Are we ready? Okay, great. All right. Uh, well, welcome to the Monday edition of Daily Thunder. Uh, aren't you guys excited for this week? So the, the advanced students that are present are going to be going through uh, the communication of the gospel and understanding just as the, uh, because the, the theme of the advanced is devotional excellence. And it's interesting because communication uh, it doesn't sound like it would have anything to do with devotional excellence, but it has everything to do with it because communication is the essence of intimacy. And if you don't communicate, it's sort of hard to get to know someone, right? And But what's interesting is in the gospel life, the sharing of Jesus becomes very, very important in the cultivation of your love for Jesus. And so one of the things you're going to see, like in Matthew 25, is you're going to see Jesus actually say, what you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. And so it's this very interesting thing that as we share, as we give to those around us, we're actually cultivating our relationship with Christ. So uh, this message is called The Stumbling Block. Uh, I had a a different title for it in the very last minute. I I changed it to this one. And I think this is very, very appropriate. But I'm pondering going through a mini-series this week while uh, we're together. Uh, I think I'm going to miss Wednesday, uh, but so maybe it'll be Monday and Friday. Uh, but on gospel communication tools. And uh, so you guys are going to get a lot of good stuff uh, this week, those of you that are students. For those of you that are uh, streaming right now or visiting or are going to be listening to this via podcast, uh, I think these will be some very helpful tools for you guys as well. <clears throat> so Proverbs 25.11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Now, for, here's what's funny is most of us are like, what in the world's that anyways? It just sounds beautiful, and it is. It's, it's, it's actually a compliment of a word fitly spoken. But what we're after as gospel tears, as men and women who communicate the truth of Jesus Christ, is that we learn to speak our words fitly. In other words, where they are fitting to the situation. If you're doing a puzzle, there are pieces that fit, and there are those that don't. And in every situation there is an appropriate fit for what we should say. And the more you get familiar with the Holy Spirit, the more you become familiar with what fits and what doesn't. Because if you just have as a gauge your own feelings, your own desires, you have a tendency to not say what is fit. Uh, And so as a result, you have a tendency to offend or to hurt. But when we learn to heed the Spirit, we learn to give what is fitting. Now, here's what's interesting. What is fitting is not always easy for someone to hear, but it's still fitting. You know, as a parent, I have to say things that aren't necessarily fun for my kids to hear sometimes, but it's still fitting because of my role as a father. And so that's what's fascinating about it is it doesn't just mean nice, kind, easy to hear words. 
fitting words are the ones that are appropriate to build and to edify and to strengthen. So <clears throat> we're going to have a lot of Corinthians today. It's really interesting because when you begin to study communications, it's interesting how the book of Corinthians rises to the surface and almost every good scripture finds its way uh, into Corinthians. Paul is dealing with miscommunication, with a disorder in and amongst the church at Corinth. And you get a problem here. You have a schism or faction that is being created in Corinth and Corinth is actually a book of reproof and rebuke. It is not a complimentary book to the church at Corinth. It is a rebuke. It is a correction book, which is interesting because many of us just have the assumption that the early church is just healthy. Just because it's early, it's healthy. When in actuality, they're made up of people very similar to us. <laughs> and all of us have a tendency to have the same <laughs> issues they do. In fact, it's really interesting, but I would say to study the book of 1 Corinthians is like to study the modern church. That's, that's what it is. And so our, our, the way we function, what we have grown up around is very, very similar to this. So one of the key things that they are struggling with in Corinth is that they have this liberty, which is true, okay? In Christ, they have this new liberty. They are no longer under the law. So could you imagine if you've lived your life under the law and then you find out that you have liberty? It's like, oh, that would be just amazing. So what they're, what they're doing is they're misusing their liberty. Now what you're going to see in the book of 1 Corinthians, it's going to build an argument and Paul is going to bring up this, 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 and he's gonna, he's gonna say, guys, I'm gonna show you a more excellent way. And then 1 Corinthians 13 is sort of that pinnacle climactic point where he says, love. You see, when you love, you're actually going to fulfill the commands. When you love, you're going to know how to speak those words that are going to be fitting. And when you don't have love, no matter what you're doing, it's just not fitting. It's not the right thing. So when you stick love back in the machinery, it works. So the church at Corinth has liberty, but they are misusing this liberty. And this liberty is becoming what Paul is going to term a stumbling block. So remember the name of this message. I don't want you to miss that. That's why I sort of highlighted it there. Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. So the book of 1 Corinthians is fascinating because Paul is not going to you know, be a naysayer to the fact that they have liberty. It's just that they need to leverage their liberty with love. Because if you have liberty, but you don't have love, you actually then are just sort of throwing off restraint, living however you want, speaking whatever you want, because I have liberty to say it. You know, I'm no longer under that law. I can do what I want. Okay, does that remind you of the modern church? In other words, it's burp, scratch. We have no restraint. We have no guidelines. We live however we desire, because we are free in Christ Jesus. And, but the fact is, Jesus Christ has set us free, yes, to become bond slaves. You see, he set us free from sin so that we be, can become servants and slaves unto righteousness. You see, but it's still our choice to choose to let go of the shackles and to choose him as our master and our Lord. But when we choose him as our Lord, we're basically saying this body belongs to you. So what happened in Corinth is they threw off the shackles and the restraints, but were never harnessed again. And the harness that God puts on us isn't you know, a weighty, burdensome harness. It's love. He harnesses us with his Holy Spirit of love and truth so that we begin to live as we ought to live in this body as opposed to just any way we feel we would like. You see, we're no longer ruled by the flesh. We're ruled by the Spirit. So if you're not ruled by the Spirit, what does that leave as the option for what's ruling you? 
the flesh. So you can be free all day long, but if you're not ruled by something greater, you are going to be ruled by something lesser, and that is the flesh. So Paul, again in 1 Corinthians, is going to bring up this interesting argument of not creating a stumbling block. So he says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Well, what an interesting statement that is. Not even just a slave to Christ. You notice what he said? I have made myself a slave to everyone. What? Paul, don't do that. That's a bad idea. Here's his logic. You see, I've been set free not to actually be a slave, but to be a slave spiritually so that I am seeking everyone's highest good and I am willing to suffer. I am willing to do hard things that they may see the truth of Jesus Christ. So he says, to the Jews, I became like one under, oh, sorry. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. Well, who in their right mind is going to want to live as one under the law if he's not under the law? To win those under the law. In other words, Paul is giving up liberties. Even though he has liberty, he is choosing to give them up so he can more effectively minister the gospel. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So what you see in each of these situations is that Paul removes the stumbling block. If there's a stumbling block, then he's going to remove it. So if he's around someone weak, he's willing to become weak like them. I remember having this exact thought go through my head when I was a missionary in uh, New Orleans. And there were all these down and outers. And I, I had this thought. And I ended up not doing it. I don't remember what the story was of why I didn't do it. But I was so close to actually pulling the trigger on it and making this thing happen. That I was going to dress up like a homeless person and just live on the streets with the homeless. And to reach the homeless. And for whatever reason I didn't do it. I don't remember what the dynamic was. But it was the same thinking. It's like, okay, how can I win those? Well, how about I become like them and live with them and then share their life with them so that they begin to trust me and then I speak into their life. It was the same rationale. If there is something that is going to obstruct my ability to speak to that person, am I willing to give up that privilege that I have? Oh, it's a tension, isn't it? So Hudson Taylor's code of conduct amongst the Chinese. I don't know if you guys have studied Hudson Taylor, but there is a very specific behavior that he chose when he was in China to reach, and he, he created it as a code of conduct for all that would join the China Inland Mission, and that is that they would dress like the Chinese. I know it sounds profound, doesn't it? But at the time, to the British, that was a statement of neglect of British culture, a show, a show of dishonor back to the crown to dress like the Chinese. It's like, hey, if you're a, a good British man, then dress like a British man. You don't uh, dress like the Chinese. And so what Hudson Taylor actually did is he went out of his way to be Chinese when he was in China. And of course, he's one of the most effective missionaries of all time, so it's sort of hard to argue. But it was based on this same rationale. If there's a stumbling block, 
then I want to remove it. I don't want anything to stand in the way. David Wilkerson's decision with JoJo, I don't know if you guys have ever heard me discuss uh, JoJo and uh, the shoes, but for me, it's one of the, a critical uh, story to help me understand something and sort of grip a key idea. So David Wilkerson uh, was a country preacher in Pennsylvania, and he feel, I mean, the story's great. It's in the cross on the switchblade, and it's a fantastic story. But he feels burdened to go to New York City, this is back in, I want to say the 50s, uh, to minister the gospel to the gang members. And uh, not the easiest job, especially when you're a country preacher and, you know, with a little twang in your voice. And you're going to go to inner city New York and minister to the roughest people on earth at the time, right? And the story is great. I mean, it's a fantastic story. But this man genuinely loved these gang members. And the gang members begin to catch that, that this man genuinely loves them. And he's living amongst them. He's with them, right? And he's, he's sort of sharing their life with them. And so one of the key stories, because he was still of the old school mentality, which is you dress with a suit and tie and nice shoes, polish your shoes because you're a pastor. And you show the, you know, the polish of what God can do to a person, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just interesting when you take it into inner city New York because it wasn't translating the same way it was supposed to. And so he comes up to this park bench where Jojo, who is a, not just a gang member, but he was a leader of one of the gangs, was sitting. And he sits down next to Jojo and he says, uh, hey, Jojo. And he, Jojo is just like, I know who you are, preacher. I have no interest in you know, what you're trying to do. I don't want to listen to what you're trying to give me. And he goes, Jojo, why don't you listen to me? I have something, uh, that, you know, the God of the universe loves you. He goes, uh, man, you and I have nothing in common. Okay, look at you. Look at you. Look at those shoes that you have. And his shoes were all nice and new and polished. And look at those shoes. I've never had a new pair of shoes in my life. And at the time, Jojo didn't even have shoes on. Okay, so he's like shoeless. Uh, and you know, here's David Wilkerson with his polished shoes. And so in that moment, David Wilkerson realized that his shoes were blockading his forward progression in Jojo's soul. So he leans down, unties his shoes, removes his shoes, and says, here, take the shoes. He says, I'm not taking your shoes. Take my shoes. You're complaining about my shoes. Why don't you have a new pair of shoes? And Jojo's like, what? Didn't even know what to do with it. It so shocked him. And so David Wilkerson wouldn't let him go. He said, you keep talking about my shoes. You take the shoes. They're yours now. And so he puts them on and they fit. And Jojo has these nice polished pastor shoes. <laughs> you know, in his rags. And he's just like beaming. You know, the thought that he had shoes on. This was like shocking to him. Now, the story with Jojo is really good. I'm not going to go into it. But Jojo is one for Christ. Okay, so it's really fascinating to see. And even as I, as I read that story, I moved to just recognize that when you live in suburbia, USA, and yet you go to reach the weak and the poor, there's certain suburban things that actually can obstruct your ability to speak clearly to those you are attempting to reach. So the key that I'm bringing up is remove the stumbling block. You have liberty. There is nothing wrong with you wearing your shoes right now and polishing them and having them look good. But if those shoes stand in the way of you ministering and reaching the soul of someone else, are you willing to take off your shoes or give up your shoes? And that's part of what Paul is bringing out in 1 Corinthians. It's like, guys, you have liberty. I'm not arguing that. But you're misusing your liberty. You're not leveraging it with love. You see, you have liberty to give away your shoes too. 
See, why don't you use your liberty with love as opposed to losing your liberty for selfishness? You see, if we were to leverage this freedom that we have in Christ to serve and to give and to consider others above ourselves, whoa, the world's going to be changed. So classic communication blockades. I'm going to call these the unnecessaries. Now, I used to teach advanced levels of communication. Okay, so I taught basic communications and then I... I uh, had another course, and it was advanced communications. And then I did another course, and I was struggling, because what do you do past advanced? So it was called super advanced uh, communications. <laughs> so I've, I've spent a lot of time in my life dealing with the art of communications and spent a lot of time thinking about it. What you're getting today is just a little diddly squat, uh, little treasure from it. So I'm going to go through what we're going to call the unnecessaries that actually can hinder your communication, okay? Fillers, you guys ever heard of a filler? A filler is like, like, <laughs> you know, um, er, uh, an old-fashioned one, er. I don't know that we do er anymore, but that's like old school filler. Uh, so when you, when you read different writings and they're trying to get in the vernacular, they'll say er. Uh, but we have um and like and you know. Those are the classic ones in the American language. And so it's, it's dangerous because once you start talking about fillers, people have a tendency to focus on fillers. So I'm really trying not to feed you any fillers right now. But it's really hard now that I'm thinking about fillers too. <laughs> Let's move on. Poor grammar. It's an odd statement to think that poor grammar can actually stumble your audience, but it does. It diminishes their perspective of your intelligence. So if you actually have something smart to give them, something good to give them, your grammar actually can impede that. Now, I'm going to tell you that God can override every single one of these. He can. It's not that these things are going to harm the person that you're talking to. It's just that if I was going to train you, I would say, let's deal with these. Let's just get them out of the way so that they do not blockade. This is an unnecessary stumbling block. Poor hygiene. If you have bad breath, it's an odd thing, but it can actually impede your ability to communicate with someone. And why would your lack of brushing your teeth, I mean, your teeth are the ones that are rotting, right? Why would it affect them? Because it does. Let me just say it that way. It affects interpersonal communications. Now up here, if I have bad breath right now, you may not uh, be impacted by it. So that's one of the benefits of public speaking, right? You have a little distance. But when you are reaching people in normal communication throughout the day, how you handle your hygiene. If there, there's this one man in my life who was actually one of the best communicators, I, it ranks right up there, some of the, one of the best communicators I've ever heard, and he didn't take showers. You know, just a, it's a strange little statement, right? And it actually impacted his ability to communicate. Isn't that a weird statement that I'm making? But poor hygiene has an effect on your ability to reach people. Because people, if they don't want to be around you for those reasons, now there are reasons, and I'll get to, that people won't want to be around you. And, you know, as a Christian, it's like, hey, we understand that. But these are reasons you shouldn't be pushing people away. There is no need to push people away the wrong way. Now, if you've been in a prison camp, and you know, you're in a, a prison in solitary confinement, and you're doing Morse code through, and someone gets thrown into your prison cell with you, you haven't taken a shower for a couple of years, you know, it goes with the territory, right? And so there are certain things we cannot help, and we give the gospel anyways. 
And I don't want you to not give the gospel because you haven't taken a shower, okay? I want you to give the gospel whenever God opens the door, but to the degree that you can maintain excellence in your presentation, do. This is an interesting one I'm throwing in, and that's disinterest or unimpassioned. When you are unimpassioned or disinterested, it's the same concept of the handshake. It seems like I brought this up the other day. How you engage with someone shows value to them. And so for a man, a firm handshake actually is a statement of intentionality. So look, I'm engaged. You see, when you have the, what do we call it, a dead fish handshake, for whatever reason, it's disgusting to us too. And we were, we were talking about that the other day too. Why would it matter if someone has a dead fish hand? You know, it's, yeah, it, see, there's people that are uh, so, so disturbed by it. But as a result, that's a distraction. When you engage and you look someone in the eye, you are showing value to them. And as a result, you are starting by saying, you matter. Remembering their name, very, very significant. I mean, if I were to give you some different techniques of winning an audience and gaining attention from people, throw in people's names while you're speaking. Suddenly they wake up real quick if they're falling asleep. But when you're disinterested or you're unimpassioned about what you're talking about, why should they be interested? You see, if you truly are sharing the grand, glorious message of the gospel, it should overtake you. And so if you've ever seen Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, yeah, like that. That is how we should be communicating. Now, you don't need to have an Australian accent and say, crikey. You need to have passion for the gospel. Because if it's true that Jesus Christ has set you free, prove it with how you live. Prove it with how it beams out of your eyes. Prove it with how it comes out of your mouth. And so when someone engages you and you are thrilled about what you're talking about, well, you know, that has an impact. That's, you know, when we read a good book or when we watch a good movie, it's interesting, but no one needs to tell us to be interested or passionate about it. We are. And as a result, like, you need to see this. It was so good. And what does it do to the person you're talking to? It's like, huh. Now, it depends on if they like you and trust you. Because some people, have you ever had someone in your life that just has very bad taste in movies? So they'll be like, oh, I love this movie. Okay, note to self, don't watch that one. <laughs> Number five, fidgety. So if, if we're in a public communications class, there's, there's certain rules like, don't bring your pencil or pen up with you. Just leave it, leave it in your seat. Don't bring it up with you because what's gonna happen? You're gonna fidget with it. Fidgeting is a funny propensity that we have, especially if we're nervous. If we're nervous, we fidget. So if you have glasses, people will take off their glasses and then fidget with them. And so if you're, the, if you're in the audience, you're like, get the glasses away from them. It, <laughs> so the audience will become, will, they'll fixate on what you're fidgeting with. I had a teacher in college and we would keep score in the crowd, Bob, my roommate, and I would keep score. He would put his hands in his pockets, and he had change in his pockets and keys. So he'd be like, ching, ching. So that was like right pocket, score. And then he'd be walking around and go, ching, ching. Left pocket, score. <laughs> Fidgeting, okay? I mean, to the point where I, I could care less what the guy's talking about. He was ridiculous. He was so off base in everything he was saying. Anyways, he was, it was intro to Bible, and he was explaining away all the miracles. So I was like tuning him out. And I'm like counting the score uh, of, of his keys and change in his pocket. Oddities. So there's various oddities that can 
distract. And so I don't know that I want to go into those if you want to ask me on the side of what sort of oddities can distract, but it's the way we do things. It's mannerisms that if you can work on them, they actually can help bring focus and clarity to what you're saying. So if you have the ability to remove a stumbling block, what should you do? Well, let's just start working on it. I wouldn't panic about it or stress about it. God's gracious, and he can use us in our unfinished state to deliver the gospel. But to the degree that we can begin to bring a sharpness, like you could use a dull pencil or you could use a sharp one. If you have a sharpener, I would sharpen the pencil. And that's the way I would be if I was encouraging you in communications. It does not mean I want you to feel this weight, like, oh, I should never communicate because I do this, this, and this. Just keep communicating. But you might want to uh, start being sharper on these things just because it's going to help. So the rule, remove the unnecessaries. To the degree that you can, remove the unnecessaries. If, po- if, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So that's an interesting scripture to stick in that context, don't you think? Live peaceably with all men. It, it, it's funny but the way we speak, like especially publicly, is a statement of love and respect to our audience. And so if I am relaxed, it helps you relax. If I am nervous up here and I'm dropping my notes and I lose my place and I'm staring at my note card, it happens, by the way, those things happen all the time. And audiences are gracious, but they are stressed out with you. Yeah, I, I remember this uh, one uh, lady, I, I can't remember if it was a man or a lady, I just remember the situation man or lady, singing the Star Spangled Banner in, I think it was the old Mile High Stadium. So this is the Broncos Stadium back in the day. And the person's at midfield, the spotlight is on them. And maybe it was an arena game. It might have been an arena game because it it was a spotlight. So that doesn't make a lot, unless it was a night game, which could have been. But let's go with arena here. So in the middle of arena, uh, probably a Nuggets game. And... They, start, they started too high. And so as a singer, I'm right there with them immediately. And I'm stressed out for them because I'm thinking either they have the highest voice in the history of humanity, which is possible, okay, or they just pitched this too high. And that creates great problems as you progress. So the singer knew it. And I'm right there with them because they couldn't focus on the words and they started to get the words wrong because they were so worried about the pitch that they were in. So they get to the high point and suddenly they stop. It is totally silent and the person is staring at the ground and it is silent in the arena. Oh, agony. But here's what's interesting. It wasn't just agony for them. Everyone in the audience was, you know, they didn't know if they should clap. They didn't, but everyone is like with them. And everyone is just tormented right now. <laughs> And then the person started, and I want to say it was too low. I don't remember what it was, but it was totally, it was the worst Star Spangled Banner in the history of sports. And you've never heard such a cheer in all your life when they got done. (laughs) So audiences are merciful to a degree, right? They will identify with you, but don't put them through torture. (laughs) To the degree that you can serve and wash the feet of your audience, you want to. Understanding cultural respect, the Japan principle. So in America, 
if I were to teach you how to be well-behaved and well-mannered, which you know, I teach my kids that, and if you ask me, I'll give you some pointers uh, in that, but you don't burp. If you have a, a burp forming inside of you, you stifle it. You find a way to deal with it in a, in a manner that is not disrespectful and crude and rude. Because in our culture, a burp is a show of disrespect, okay? It is a lack of control or physical control. And so some of you are like, really? I didn't know that. Uh, so that, that might be just a good gold gem for you uh, that, are, that are here visiting or here for advanced. But in Japan, at the end of a meal, if you liked the meal, you burp. It is a show of honor and respect. Now this gets a little tricky for those of us from America <laughs> because where we come from, that is rude. And yet, what is the higher principle? In the Bible, it doesn't say, thou shalt not burp. It says, love. And so as a result, the, the overriding principle in every environment you come into is the language of love. And so, ironically, even though your mom taught you not to burp after a meal, if you're in Japan and you like the meal, technically, which I would just encourage you to burp no matter what, even if it's a bad meal, it's a show of honor to the hostess. And so that would be really hard for me because I don't even remember how to burp after all these years. It's like, well, how would I even do it? I mean, what do you do to do it? Because when you spend a whole lifetime trying to stifle it, but my point with this is love is the chief of communication. So if you're going to communicate well, what is fitting and what is uh, that apple of gold in a setting of silver, it is love in every situation. So if that means to burp, that's a form of communication. I know it sounds totally strange. I'm giving you a pretty extreme one. But if that is a form of communication that actually would be honorable and loving, it's the appropriate thing to say or to do or to noise out. I don't know how you would express, express that. The hat principle. So in the younger generation, which probably many of us can relate to, Wearing a hat, like a baseball hat, for a guy inside is fine, okay? There's really no issue. My grandpa, when I came to visit, I come walking into his house, I sit down at his table, and he says, take off the hat. What? Uh, I mean, it was so scary to me, take off the hat. I was showing such a dishonor to his home by walking in with a hat. Now, again, the issue isn't a hat or not a hat. The issue is my grandpa, he's my audience. And so if my audience is going to interpret my behavior as a show of disrespect, what should I do? To the degree that I can still honor my own conscience, I should serve him. If I'm coming into his house, no hat, okay? Now if you come into my, hat, my house, I'm fine with a hat. Does that make sense? So know your audience. If you understand that, that becomes very, very significant. Now, if my granddad is over at my house and you come over to visit, <laughs> that's an interesting tension, right? Because what I would say is we still want to be sensitive to my grandpa to the degree that we in that room desire to reach him. If you desire to have a voice in his life, I would remove your hat when you come in. Does that make sense? Because what you're doing is showing a dishonor to my home, to, in his mind. And so, I, I mean, no, it's complex. But that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians. He's basically saying, 
You understand your audience, and with your liberty, you leverage it lovingly. And that means if you, you have the liberty to wear your hat, but are you willing to give that up to serve my grandpa? Yes, my grandpa's sensitivity on that point might be a little extreme. Might be a little unnecessary. It's, it's weird, because back in the days, if you read Reese Howells, Reese Howells, it was inappropriate to go outside if a man didn't have his head covered. So they would always have their derby cap on. And it's like, what an obscure thing that is. And yet for him, God asked him at one point in time to, to go out without a hat and to trust him, to trust God. I mean, it's a funny story, but it's called the Hatless Brigade. It's a great part of the book about Reese Howes. And to me, it's like, that sounds pretty easy. I could go out without a hat uh, and uh, not feel awkward. But for him, it was an issue of shame to not have a hat on. So it's just these funny issues, like a hat. Okay, and many of you could understand that from head coverings. It's the same principle, and that's ironically in 1 Corinthians that that is being addressed as head coverings. And so these are issues of respect and honor. If you're in a culture in which a head covering will show a deference and respect, you need to wear that. There's other environments where if you were to wear it, it would show disrespect to your head. Because your head may say, take that off. Well, what do you do then? Because the whole point of it is to show respect and honor. So the hat principle. And then the JoJo principle I already brought up, but if your shoes are hindering the forward progression of the gospel in someone's life, are you willing to give them up? Paul says, look, I'm willing to not eat meat for the rest of my life if it were to offend someone. And so, I mean, meat sacrificed to idols was a huge deal. For us, it's not. And so as a result, we can't even relate to that. Paul is saying, look, I'm free to eat it. In Christ, I have no issue in my own conscience, but for your sake... I will go without eating it that I do not offend your soul. I do not want to put a stumbling block in front of anyone. So this is going to be a little twist on this message because I'm going to talk about classic communication blockades and I'm going to call them the necessaries. And this is really odd because I'm here saying remove unnecessary blockades, but there are going to be necessary blockades. The fact that you're a Christian just in and of itself, if you were to go out into this culture and declare, hey, I'm a Christian. Boy, you just suddenly put up a blockade right there with a good portion of your audience. <laughs> they don't want to hear from you. Oh, you're one of those. And I've had that conversation many times. Uh, I had this one lady in Starbucks. You know those community tables where there's just sort of a, an understood thing that if you're the only one at a community table, then you're supposed to spread out. This lady comes and plants herself right across from me on the community table as I'm typing, which, you know, I'm, I'm not against having someone there. It just seemed weird, you know, like, okay. And then she was making all sorts of noise. You're like, huh. oh, ah. So when someone does that, they're oftentimes communicating something like, I, I want someone to share in my pain. So I look up, I go, is everything all right? Well, that was a mistake. And then she started talking, well, I just, and she just went into it. And so the next, you know, 20 minutes, I'm listening to her talk. And then she asked me a question, and I gave a simple response. I don't remember what it was, but it was something you know, like, what do you do? Well, and I don't remember what I said, if it was I'm a pastor, or I, I don't remember what my answer was, because I have various responses I can give. And she goes, oh, you're one of those. <laughs> yeah, so I immediately have put a roadblock in, a stumbling block right in front of her feet. It's like, hey, lady, come forward. She doesn't want to have anything to do with me. Of course, she didn't leave for, what, a couple hours. Boy, this lady dominated my afternoon. The necessaries. <clears throat> Listen to Paul talk. And you'll notice that this is in 1 Corinthians, too. 
For Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block and foolishness. Didn't I just say to remove all stumbling blocks? Didn't Paul say in this very same book to not stick a stumbling block in front? And he says, yeah, but we preach Christ crucified, and it's a stumbling block. Well, isn't that an odd thing? See, it's a little twist on our message today that there are certain things that you should not provide as a stumbling block to your audience, but there are certain things that just are a stumbling block. So here's a good uh, beginner's list for you if you haven't run into these problems in the culture that we live. The idea of God itself can be a stumbling block. You start even bringing up the topic of God and some people will shut down immediately. The gospel. You start pressing the gospel, which is just what we do as Christians because you can talk about God in general, but if you don't get to how God in general applies to them specifically, what exactly are we talking about here? The entire goal is to see them win. Uh, to see them gained for Christ Jesus. Jesus is the lone Savior. Try that one on. Uh, that one goes over really well. Uh, preaching. You see, you can teach, but to preach, which means to speak with authority, to say this is what the Word of God says, and to act like that's what it really says and there's no arguing to it. To preach, or have you ever heard the statement, preachy? Preachiness, I get it. Okay, preachiness is like arrogance. That's, that's how it's typically translated today in our culture. If you're preachy, that means you're speaking down to someone. And I wouldn't encourage that either. But to preach, it's through the foolishness of preaching that God has chosen to win those that believe. I, why he's chosen something so foolish is preaching. But it's hard to do it. It's hard to speak authoritatively on this, to actually go into this world and speak as if God knows what he's talking about. And I'm not making excuses for it. How about this one? Identifying with the lowly, weak, and poor. You know, at first blush, it sounds politically correct, right? But if you hang out with the lowly, then you look like the lowly, and your voice doesn't have much credibility. It's like, look who their friends are. See, my, I remember my sister, when she went into high school, my sister, I used to mockingly call her the saint. Okay, I, I wasn't really, in, I, I, I would have called myself a Christian, but she was like a serious Christian. So she was in a public high school. This is before homeschooling even existed. And my sister's in a public high school. And she, over lunch, sat with the uh, disabled kids and the foreign students. You know how embarrassing that was for me? I wasn't even in the same school, but I heard about it. Who my sister's friends were. And as a result, my sister was deemed one of them. My sister identified with the weak and was then treated as one of the weak. Isn't that interesting? And so, in every regard, what you see Jesus doing is coming and identifying with the weakest. He announces his coming to the shepherds. I mean, th that is a bad idea. Jesus at least curries some favor with Herod. Uh, with the Roman Empire. Do something that is not going to get you in trouble. You, know, you, you want to get in with the good guys, with the big, powerful people. Instead, he identifies with the lowly, the weak, and the poor. And in so doing, wins them. 
So number six, indefatigable evangelism is also a stumbling block. It just is. Indefatigable means tireless. It refuses to stop. And even when you say, no, I don't want to hear it, the person's like, kink, kink, hi. Like, will you get away from me? You see, this actually bothers not just the person you're after, but everyone. It's like, shut that guy up. He is, he's obnoxious. You see, our loving pursuit of souls around us is considered obnoxious to the world around us. You see, these are usually the things that we will trim out right here instead of the other list I gave you. <laughs> In other words, the other list are things that we actually can repair and fix so that we can better show love and respect. These are things that we, sh we keep in to show love and respect to our king in heaven. Isn't that interesting? And by so doing, it becomes a stumbling block to people. And yet, that very stumbling block is what people fall on and are broken. When we are willing to identify with Jesus, it actually has a profound gospel impact in this world. So the rule, trust God to wield the necessaries as gospel weaponry. So those are necessary, but let God, by his Holy Spirit, work them. He will. So we don't try and remove those. We don't try and just avoid the topic of God. We don't try and avoid the gospel, Jesus being the, the only Savior, preaching, identifying with the lowly, weak, and the poor, and, the, and evangelism, because it might trip our audience. We do it knowing full well it will. Isn't it funny? Here I am teaching you excellence in communication and I'm teaching you how to trip your audience. When you are willing to do this, God's power is made available. God has chosen weak things through which to change this world. 2 Corinthians 2. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Isn't that an appropriate word for all of us that have diffusers now? You know, with that, uh, you know, diffuses. So you just sort of picture it now. Now we have a mental picture of what that looks like. And it, it feels sort of like a cinnamony smell. Don't you think that's what we are as the saints of God? It's like a cinnamony smell. Some people like peppermint. I lean away from peppermint. My house smells like peppermint a lot because Leslie really likes peppermint. I, peppermint isn't my favorite smell. Vanilla and cinnamon. Yeah. So I think that's what we smell like uh, in, this, in this earth, don't you think? So, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So it's interesting because we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved, but also among those who are perishing. However, those that are perishing are not as attracted to that fragrance. It says, to the one we are the aroma of death, leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life, leading to life. So that same fragrance, it's like God does something in the nostrils, the spiritual nostrils of someone who is transformed, someone who is converted, someone who is in Christ is able to discern that fragrance. Go, oh, that's beautiful. However, those that have not yet been warmed by the Spirit of God, actually something's wrong with their nasal passage. And what they discern us to be is actually repulsive to them. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. So that's a pretty good summary right there. God doesn't do things the way we think he should. If we are speaking, I mean, I, I could teach you how to win friends and influence people. 
And to do that, I would have you eliminate the necessaries. If I, was, if I was really a good communications coach, according to the world, I would teach you not to talk about Jesus. I would teach you to never press your faith to someone else. Yeah, give them some space. Hey, let them believe what they want to believe. You see, I, I, I could make you so much more polished. You know, remove the unnecessaries, but then keep out the necessaries. Get those things out of there. Which you would agree with very quickly. It's like, oh, okay, thank you for helping me with that. I wasn't really excited about doing those anyways. However, I'm going to do the exact opposite of that, and I'm going to make you or encourage you to be what the world might deem a bad communicator. <laughs> but you're actually an effective communicator. You want to be an effective communicator for the gospel, you need to be willing to look weak in the eyes of the world, but remove the unnecessary hindrances from you being able to clearly bring the truth of Jesus Christ to a dying age in which many do not want to hear it. So, such is the tension of the gospel tier. We live in an age and generation where it is not desired, it is not asked for, it is not wanted, and yet more than ever it is needed, desperately needed that we would rise up and speak boldly the truth of Jesus Christ, but in love, always in love. In Japan, you burp. In my grandpa's house, you take off your cap in, in order that we might win the Japanese and win my grandpa. In other words, that's the summation. It is a word fitly spoken. It is a word that matches the situation just right, just like that puzzle piece, because it is a word governed by the Holy Spirit, anointed by him with love to accomplish its end. Father, you are good, and we just celebrate your life. We cherish who you are, and we ask that you would lead us today. You would give us specific opportunities to share your love with others and to offer words that are fitly spoken, even if they are not desired or wanted on the other end. Lord, may we be sharp to do what you are leading us to do. We love you and submit to you today. In the precious name we pray, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day week or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.